Good morning. My name is Josh, and my wife and I and our two sons, Emily Olson and Haddon, have been at WCC for about eight months now, and it is a joy to be at this church. I know we haven't gotten to meet all of you, but my hope is we will in due time. We want to continue to to know more and more of you and be known in this congregation. We we love this body of Christ, and so thank you for the opportunity to, to preach this morning. I want to begin with a polarizing question. I feel like this is always a great way to start a sermon. wonder how many dog people we have here at WCC. If you're a dog person, raise your hand. Okay? All right, put your hands down. You know what's next. If you're a cat person, raise your hand if you're a cat person. Here we go. Good. How's that for dividing the congregation? on a Sunday morning. For some reason, being either a dog person or a cat person is a passionate topic, right? We're hearing whoops and boos. But did you know you can actually learn a lot? You can actually learn a lot about theology from dogs and cats. For instance, you look at a dog. Dog has a pretty good life, right? Dog's adopted into a family. He's got a warm bed, maybe next to the fireplace. His food and water dish are refilled every single morning. He experiences the love and the affection and the nurturing of his owners. And when the dog lays his head down on the pillow at night, he thinks of all the ways that his owners cared for him and provided for him and met him in every need. And he said, ah, my owner must treat me like this because he is God. And then you look at a cat. And a cat has a pretty good life too, right? A cat gets adopted into a family. A cat has a warm bed. Its food and water dishes are refilled each day. It's cared for and nurtured, shown affection. But as a cat lays its head down on the pillow, recounting all the ways in which its owner cared for and provided for it, the cat says to himself, my owner must treat me like this. Because I am God. <laughs> Differing worldviews of dog and cat theology, right? Now that's funny and mostly silly, but I think there's something for us in that illustration. See, how we view life and particularly how we view certain experiences in life will shape who we believe is at the center of the universe. For most of us in our most sane moments, when we're abiding in Christ... When we're trusting in God, we recognize that he is the divine center of the universe. But each of us, each of us has those moments when life seems full of unmet expectations. When life is harder than we think it should be. When things aren't falling into the places that we think they ought and we can start placing ourselves at the center of the universe. We can start questioning the goodness of God, taking matters into our own hands, and living in what Malachi calls faithless ways. wonder how many of you can think of moments in your life. Maybe it's been in the past. Maybe for some of you it's right now. But things just aren't the way you think they should be. And you start to question if God is really at the center of the universe. Maybe it's a new job. You thought this job would be a blessing, but every day you go into work, it feels more like a curse. Maybe it's a friendship or relationship. It feels one-sided. 
You're the only one giving and giving and giving. And you can't understand how they can continue to hurt you so bad. Maybe it's a move. Some other change in your life. You had a certain expectation. But things are looking very different than you expected. See, the danger in these moments is we can begin to live in faithless ways. Taking God off the throne and putting ourselves there. No longer trusting the goodness and sovereignty of God, but taking matters into our own hands and seeking to manufacture and create our own peace and joy. And friends, the reality is removing God from the throne, putting ourselves at the center of the universe, thinking we know better than God is sin. It's what the Bible calls it. And sin causes us to live in faithless ways. And Malachi says this faithlessness it breaks, or the language he uses is profanes, the covenant in which God wants to relate to his people. Sin brings about faithlessness, and faithlessness breaks covenant. But what we're going to see in Malachi 2, 10 through 16, is that God is faithful despite our faithlessness. And God keeps his covenant perfectly, even when we profane it. And so there's good news for every one of us, faithless covenant-breaking followers of Jesus. And we're going to spend our time this morning basking in the glory of a God who is faithful despite our faithlessness. So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn them to Malachi 2, 10 through 16. You just heard it read. And the way we're going to walk through this text is a, is a bit like a court proceeding. We're going, to, we're going to see in verse 10, the prophet Malachi bring a charge against God's people. And then verse 11 He's going to present the first part of his evidence against the people's faithlessness. Verses 13 through 15 will be the second part of his evidence. And then finally, in verses 12 and 16, we're going to hear the verdict. So again, the charge, the evidence in two parts, and then the verdict. The charge, the evidence, and the verdict. So let's jump into the text. Read with me verse 10. Here's the charge. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? The nation of Israel, in whom Malachi is writing to, who, who he's bringing this charge against, was, was in a moment where they were acting faithless and profaning the covenant of their fathers. That's, that's the charge that Malachi is bringing against them. But why? What was bringing about this faithlessness and this covenant-breaking? We need to think through the context of this letter to answer that question. If you remember back a number of weeks ago to Pastor Dan's first sermon in this series, we saw that Malachi was written to the remnant of Israel that had come back to the land after the exile in Babylon, right? He's writing to the group of God's people who'd lived in exile, but they'd been delivered and they'd been brought back to Jerusalem. They'd rebuilt the temple and its walls, and now they found themselves, as Malachi says here in verse 10, acting faithless to one another and profaning the covenant of their fathers. See, Israel had come back to Jerusalem with an expectation of the way life would be. They'd heard the prophet Jeremiah make these promises of what post-exilic life would be like, what life after the exile would, would feel like and be like. And so they had this expectation of what God's blessing and care would be. They had a picture in their mind of what post-exilic life might be. And so far, reality was falling far short. And the charge Malachi is making is that they had forgotten who God was. 
they had in their sin removed him from the throne and they were living as if they were at the center of the universe. They were living faithlessly, looking to take matters into their own hands to provide for themselves in the land. And as they did, Malachi says, they were profaning or breaking the covenant of their fathers. This covenant they were profaning was, was the covenant God had made with Abraham in Genesis 12. Genesis 12, one through three says, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It was this covenant that established the Israelites as God's people. It was this covenant that promised that God would care for, provide for, and make into a great nation the people of Israel. This is why Malachi opens his charge with the first two questions. Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? The implied answer to both of those questions is yes, precisely because of the covenant God had made with Abraham generations before. And now in a moment of confusion, in a moment of unmet expectations, God's people are breaking that covenant. They're walking away from it. They're taking matters into their own hands. They're acting faithless towards one another, Malachi says. Other translations say they're acting treacherously towards one another. They're failing to love one another, treating each other in undevoted, unloving ways. The sin that is leading to the covenant being broken is sin that is causing them to not love one another in the community of God's people. And in forming this covenant with his people, God was declaring that there is a way in which his people should live together. As God's people, in God's kingdom, there is an economy. There is a kingdom rule that is built upon covenants upon trust, on on keeping promises, on on faithful fulfillment of oaths and agreements and commitments. That's what this community is built upon. As God's people are called to love them, love him, they're called to love one another in the community as well. And see, the promise of every biblical covenant is that God is at the center. He is the one who makes the covenant. He's the one who guarantees the covenant. And so as Israel is living contrary to this kingdom order, as they're living in the disorder of self-indulgence, as they're living in faithless ways, failing to love one another, Malachi says they're not just being faithless horizontally with one another, but they're profaning the covenant of God. It means they're acting faithlessly vertically as well. And friends, this is a serious charge. God's people are being indicted for living disordered lives, living against the kingdom order God has established for his people to thrive and to flourish and to experience him. And this is a charge that we need to be aware of too. As God's people today, we too are a part of covenant with God. This covenant we're a part of is called the new covenant. This covenant was established by Jesus. We enter into this covenant through faith, by grace, And he says that this covenant is marked by a call to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. So before we get into the evidence of what this faithlessness looked like, we have to ask ourselves this morning, in light of this charge against God's people in Israel, in what ways are your unmet expectations causing you to not trust God? My family and I moved here about eight months ago to start a new ministry, and we had all sorts of expectations of what that would look like. 
I had expectations of what ministry would look like eight months in. I had expectations of what church life would look like eight months in. I had expectations of what friendships and relationships would look like eight months in. And if I'm honest, there's all sorts of ways that my expectations feel unmet in this moment. And so it's been a fight to trust God. It's been a, a wrestling match to stay faithful, to, to not try and get out ahead of him, to, to not take him off the throne, to, to not think I know his plans or timeline better than he does. And so I wonder this morning, are there areas of unmet expectations in your life where you're not trusting God? Malachi brings this charge against God's people, and we need to examine our own hearts as well. So that's the charge. The people of God are acting faithless and profaning the covenant. And as we get into the evidence of the charge, Malachi breaks it into two sections. The first evidence is they're living faithless vertically toward God. And then the second piece of evidence is they're living faithless horizontally toward one another. And isn't that always the way it works, right? To use the language that Chad used last week of root and fruit. When the, the vertical relationship with God is broken, that's the root. The horizontal relationships I have with others, that's, that's the fruit, will be broken too. And so let's look at our second point this morning, the vertical evidence of their faithlessness. Look at verse 11 with me. Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. Malachi introduces the evidence by reiterating the charge. Judah has been faithless. The sin of God's people has brought about faithlessness. And this faithlessness, Malachi says, brought about an abomination. That means a detestable thing, a sickening violation of trust in Israel has occurred, Malachi says. But what is it? What was the evidence of this faithlessness that would cause such strong indictments from the prophet Malachi? It says that Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord which he loves. Literally, in the original language, Judah has profaned the holiness of Yahweh which Yahweh loves. One commentator says that Judah's actions amounted to profaning the Lord, treating him as of no significance, the opposite of glorifying or sanctifying his name and demonstrating him to be holy. It seems as if Malachi is using this language of the sanctuary being profaned as a way to communicate that the nation of Israel was making a mockery of God and his holiness. Their actions were standing in direct opposition to who God was and what he was like in his character and nature. But what were the actions of the nation that caused this abomination and mockery? It says it there at the verse, end of verse 11. They've married the daughter of a foreign God. The faithlessness of Judah is being demonstrated by their marrying outside of the nation of Israel. The sons of Yahweh are marrying daughters of foreign gods. And this is vertical faithlessness in that God was very clear with his people that for the nation of Israel to honor him and to protect the purity of their worship, they were to not marry anyone outside the nation of Israel. They were not to marry people who did not worship the God they worshiped. 
In Deuteronomy chapter 7, as God is declaring that he had chosen Israel to be his special, unique people, and as he's instructing them on how to live for his glory and for their joy, he says in Deuteronomy 7.3, you shall not intermarry with them. Speaking of foreign nations, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away from your sons from following me to serve other gods. Now we need to notice in this passage, this command to not marry outside their nation had nothing to do with xenophobia or racism. It had nothing to do with the ethnicity or the language or the skin color of the people, but rather it had everything to do with the purity of worship of God's people. God says intermarriage would lead to the children of Israel serving other gods. And so in faithlessness, Judah was going outside of the covenant family and introducing the worship of foreign gods through marriage. The nation of Israel was inviting in worship of false deities because the unmet expectations of post-exilic life was causing them to sin and doubt God's goodness and provision. So why were they taking wives from foreign gods? Listen to this. It's because as they came back to the land after exile, poor and powerless, and rather than, than trust God to provide for them, Rather than to live in the land faithfully following Yahweh, trusting him to meet their needs, they pursued marriage with those already established in the land. This added reason to it being a faithlessness expressed vertically. Judah was not trusting God to provide for them and to care for them in the land that he brought them back to. Right? Think about this. What better way to quickly amass wealth and land and power than to marry into it? Can you see how the sin of unmet expectations can bring about faithlessness? And it led to the profaning of the covenant in which God makes with his people. I think this this evidence can be illustrated well in the culture of of our day, in our current cultural moment. As Malachi is bringing this evidence against God's people, and he presents the evidence of such a charge, he says that God's people were looking at their current circumstances. They were looking at the circumstances of their nation, not seeing how God could be at work. They were poor, they were powerless, and they were marginalized. The rebuilt temple was but a shadow of of what it once was. The people of God were mocked and ridiculed from every side. And so they started to wed themselves to, to people in their culture that would help them gain power, that would help them gain the majority that would help them build a life that more met their expectations, even if it meant compromising their holiness, even if it meant compromising their worship, even if it meant compromising their witness and their devotion to God. And as I've been studying this this week, I can't help but see this principle playing out in our day as well. Many of us look out to our our cultural landscape of our nation, and we see a culture and a way of life that doesn't meet our expectations. It doesn't mean meet what we think the kingdom of God in this land should look like. As God's people, we look out into the world and feel poor, powerless, and marginalized. We see the church today as just a shadow of what it once was back then. We feel mocked and ridiculed. And what I see happening is God's people tempted to wed themselves to people in our culture that we think can help us gain power, that can help us gain the majority that can help us build a life that better fits our expectations and not unlike the nation of Israel. The ones we often wed ourselves to are not devoted to the things of God. 
And friends, I fear what can end up happening is we can compromise our holiness. We can compromise our worship. We can even compromise our witness and our devotion to God. See, whether it's politicians on either side of the aisle, whether it's church leaders or movements that will do anything for rapid growth and multiplication, or it's simply compromising our convictions to be more popular or accepted in the culture, Malachi would call those actions faithless. And they show that we don't really trust God to be on the throne, caring for and providing for his people. And I think it's in this faithlessness that we actually demonstrate we don't understand how God's kingdom works. In our sin, we don't really believe, or maybe we don't want to believe, that it is most often through the weakness of God's people or through the marginalization of his people that he works most powerfully. Do you know when historically God's kingdom has spread and multiplied fastest? It's when his people are marginalized. It's when his people are powerless. It's when his people are persecuted. So we see this evidence against Israel illustrated. And I think there's probably application for many of us in that illustration. But the main application we need to take from this as followers of Jesus who want to honor him and be faithful to his covenant is about marriage and particularly who we marry. Now, so far we've been talking about faithlessness generally. But at this point in the text and at this point in the sermon, we, we turn to faithlessness expressed in marriage. And, and as we get more specific here, I want to prep us a little bit. What God has to say in his word about marriage and about who we marry and about divorce and about having kids, what he has to say is very countercultural. And it, it can be difficult sometimes as it rubs against the grain of everything we see and hear and experience culturally. And so though I am not one of your pastors, my aim is to have a pastoral moment with you here. In a sense, what we're going to be doing is a bit of marriage counseling together. A bit of pre-marriage counseling if you're not married yet. And my aim is that we would trust the authority of God's word together, particularly in the places it stands against what we see and feel in our culture. And we would, and we would trust that God would meet us in this moment and he would be the great counselor. See, so in this evidence against Israel, we need to see from this text that there's no place for God's people to marry unbelievers. In God's kingdom order, there is no place for a follower of Jesus to marry someone who's not. This is countercultural, right? Who am I to say from this stage who you can and cannot marry? This is not a popular notion in a world that has been influenced by the romanticism of Disney that says we ought to follow our hearts particularly as it leads towards a significant other above all else. But if, friends, if, if we let Disney disciple us around the things of love and marriage above the Bible, we're in a dangerous place. And this isn't just an Old Testament thing either. The Apostle Paul says that we should not be unequally yoked to unbelievers. That's his language for marrying people outside the covenant faith. Uniting yourself with someone who does not believe the same things as you, who does not worship the same God as you, who does not have the same worldview or priorities or devotion as you do in the most intimate, connected relationship you can have on earth is unwise and dangerous. The corruption of our hearts 
is already a strong enough enemy of our devotion and holiness without inviting the temptation and enticement to sin into one's life through marriage to someone who has not given their life to follow Jesus. See, most of us would see the danger to marrying someone that is devout in another belief system. Right? So, so many of us would understand the danger in, in marrying someone who's a devout Hindu or a devout Buddhist or a devout Muslim. But friends, I, would, I want us to, to understand that unbelief, atheism, agnosticism is a belief system. And unfortunately, I've seen this play out with people I care deeply about. Against wisdom and counsel from people they love, I've seen a friend of mine who is a believer marry an unbeliever, and after a couple of years, his involvement with God's people, his devotion to God's word, his faith altogether was not what it once was, and and now they have kids, and they're not being raised to know the Lord. They're not being raised in the community of God's people, and he is living proof of this repeated warning in God's word. Marrying someone who does not share the faith you have is unwise and dangerous. Now, I understand this is a deeply personal and difficult topic for many of us. There are countless situations we can think of that this touches and affects. So let me make mention of just a couple things. First and foremost, this is in no way the unforgivable sin. If, if you have married an unbeliever, but your hope and trust is in Jesus and you live a life of allegiance towards him, the Bible tells us in Romans 8, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So friend, you are free and forgiven. And if you're in that situation today, I would encourage you, pray for your spouse. Pray that the Lord would call them to himself. And and I would encourage you to spend some time reading and studying 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7 is this word from Paul to this exact situation that I think would encourage you and build you up and give you a vision for what God might have in your moment. Maybe ask your community group leader, one of the pastors, if they'd meet with you and study that text together. But friends, if there is anything Jesus loves to do through the gospel, it's taking broken, sinful things and making them beautiful, redeemed things. And so I would encourage you, pray and trust that he will do that with you in your marriage as well. But if you are single here this morning and you desire marriage, I would encourage you, pray for a godly spouse. And as hard as it may be, as countercultural as it may be, wait for God to provide you with that spouse. And as you pray, don't be afraid to admit how hard waiting is. Admit that you can't wait on your own that you need God's help to wait and then trust that he will empower you by his spirit to wait well and then wait. If marriage is something you think you're ready for and desire, I would encourage you, surround yourself in community. Surround yourself with the community that God has given you to to help you, to, to pray with you, to hold you accountable, maybe even to be the people that help you find that spouse. And then put yourself in places where other single, believing, devoted followers of Jesus are. But trust God and don't let the romanticism of Disney lead you astray. So the first evidence Malachi brings 
to support the charge against God's people is this vertical evidence of their faithlessness being seen in the marrying of those outside of God's covenant people. Now the second round of evidence Malachi brings is a horizontal evidence, and it can be seen in verses 13 through 15. In verse 13, Malachi states that the Lord refuses to accept their offerings, and in verse 14, the people ask, why does he not? What's his answer? Why wouldn't God be accepting the offerings of his people? Because verse 14 says, the Lord was witness to your marriage, and you've been faithless to the wife of your youth, and you've profaned the covenant of marriage by divorcing her. See, the the reason God's anger has been kindled and he, he refuses to accept the offering of his people is because the marriage they're acting faithless towards, the marriage they are ending through divorce was a covenant. The relationship that, that they're breaking is no mere fling built upon emotional satisfaction or a human desire to not be alone, but rather it's built upon the rock of covenant commitment. And so there's two things I want us to see in this passage that clarify what kind of covenant this was. One is in the first part of verse 14. It says, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth. See, this covenant was made before God. He was there. Verse 14 says, God was a witness between you and the wife of your youth. Whenever I officiate a wedding, the vows sound something like this. I, Josh, take you, Emily, to be my wife, and I promise and covenant before God and before you and before these witnesses to be your loving and faithful husband as long as we both shall live. A God-honoring wedding ceremony recognizes that God is in their midst. He is the guest of honor, and he acts as the first witness. So marriage is a covenant before God. This is the very essence of marriage itself. Marriage is not a man-made institution. It's not merely a human agreement between two people. Marriage is a covenant commitment instituted by God, made before God, to picture the way God operates in covenant with his bride, the church. The Apostle Paul made this picture very clear in Ephesians 5. He says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Did you catch that? Paul is saying what happens in marriage Though a deeply profound mystery refers directly to Christ and the church. Here's what that means. Divorce is fundamentally a contradiction of Jesus' covenant with his wife, the church. Jesus is the covenant-keeping husband of his bride. He will never leave her nor forsake her. And despite her covenant disobedience, he will be her husband always. And when we act faithlessly towards God, by acting faithlessly towards our spouse, the Bible says we ruin the picture of what Jesus wants our marriages to be. Now, one more thing needs to be said here about divorce before we move on. There are situations, the Bible says, where as a last resort, divorce may be necessary. And we don't have time this morning to cover all of that, or to go into every one of what those situations may be, nor is that the point that Malachi is making. But I know how painful and real the matters of marriage and divorce are for many of us. And so I wanted to, 
And I needed to make mention of that before we move on. Then the second thing that we need to see from this passage about the covenant that marriage is, is in verse 15. It says, did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. Admittedly, here it is on the screen, the word-for-word translation of the English Standard Version makes this text a little clunky to understand. Some of you probably have the New International Version, which tells us the same thing, but in a bit easier way to understand. Here's what verse 15 in the NIV says. Has not the Lord made them one, husband and wife? In flesh and spirit they are his. And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. And so what Malachi is saying about the covenant of marriage is it's not just a picture, though it is, but it also has a purpose. The purpose of the marriage covenant is to make the husband and wife one in God and to have godly offspring. The very first command to the very first husband and wife was be fruitful and multiply, right? God's purpose in the entire universe, but to also include husbands and wives, is to multiply his glory on the face of the earth. God created human beings in his image full of his glory. So as more human beings are created, more of his image or his glory is multiplied. And so husbands and wives get to multiply God's glory by becoming one through the covenant of their marriage and then having babies. This is one of the intended purposes of the gift of marriage. Another reality from God's word that runs against the grain of our culture, right? What's the world say about kids? It says that kid, having kids is an option. It says that having kids can, can be a distraction or even a hindrance to the life I want to live. Kids interrupt my opportunity to go hiking or to go skiing or to run ultra marathons to live the life that I want to build. But what's God say? God says that a purpose of the gift of marriage is to have godly offspring and to multiply image bearers who display his glory on the earth. So I wonder what it would mean for God's people if, if we really understood that. Like, what if we invited God into the conversation of how many kids we should have? What if we really prayed about if we should have more kids, or we should foster kids, or we should adopt kids? Now, I know there are some of you that for one reason or another have been unable so far to have any children. So first, I want to say that your marriage is no less precious or meaningful to God in any way. And though it's different, there is beauty in the promise that we can multiply God's glory through discipleship. We can multiply God's glory through adoption and foster care too. But second, the reality that infertility exists makes divorce all the more grievous. I believe this is part of why God was so angry with what he was seeing happening in Israel. In a broken world where infertility exists, that God's people would divorce and not live out the divine purpose of marriage by being fruitful and multiplying is a tragic reality. And so the picture and the purpose of marriage was being marred, and the prophet Malachi ends verse 15 with a warning. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Faithlessness is on trial. And Malachi has brought a charge against God's people. And he has presented evidence to back up that charge. And now it's time for the verdict. 
And we see it in two different places. First in verse 12. Malachi calls for anyone who is found to be faithless, profaning the covenant by marrying a daughter of foreign gods to be cut off from the people of God. Look at verse 12. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this and who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. So according to evidence, number one, the verdict is guilty. Malachi says the sentence is death. Being cut off from the tents of Jacob means that anyone found guilty of this faithlessness should be cut off from his people, cast away from his people, and be put to death. Sin causes faithlessness, and faithlessness breaks covenant, and the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And then the verdict continues. Look at verse 16. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. The man who does not love his wife but divorces her covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. This is ambiguous Hebrew language. But most commentators agree that what is being communicated is that when a man divorces his wife for unjustifiable ways, he's inviting violence, he's inviting unrighteousness, and he's inviting wickedness to himself. Everything that a husband is to pursue for his wife, blessing, good, sanctification, praise, beauty, peace, and justice, he's wickedly robbing from her in divorce. So again, Based upon the second part of the evidence, God's people are once again guilty. Sin causes faithlessness. Faithlessness breaks covenant. And the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. So friends, if, if you're like me, you come to the end of a difficult passage like we've looked at this morning at the end of Malachi 2, you consider what it says you can't help come to the conclusion that, like Israel, I'm guilty of being faithless. Like Israel, we are guilty of looking to our life experiences and seeing, we, seeing ways where we think we'd be better at being God than he is. Like Israel, we're guilty of seeing our unmet expectations as a problem with God rather than a place to trust God. Like Israel, we're guilty of disobeying God to try and gain power, prestige, or prominence. And like Israel, we are guilty of being faithless to the covenants of our marriage, marring the picture of the marriage between Jesus and his bride and breaking the purpose God intends for married couples to live out. And friends, like Israel, the sentence is the same. You and I, every other human that has ever lived were deserving of death. This court case we've looked at today is our court case as well. But the good news of the gospel, hear me now, the good news of the gospel is that's not our only court case. See, if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, and may I say this morning, if, if you haven't put your faith in Jesus, if, if you wouldn't sit here this morning and call yourself a Christian yet, I want you to know this can be your reality as well. But if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, there was a court case some time ago that was much like this one today. A charge was brought against you. Evidence was presented that supported that charge and a verdict was read. Guilty. 
each of us guilty of sin before a perfect and holy, righteous God. But just before the sentencing was read, Jesus, the holy, blameless Son of God, stood up on your behalf and he said, he's mine. She's mine. I've paid their penalty and they're mine. And friends, in a moment, your sins were forgiven. You were made new. You were adopted into the family of God and brought into the kingdom of light to live as Jesus' friends and servants and ambassadors. But the reality is, we still live in the midst of a sin-broken world that seeks to entice us and tempt us. And so in a very real way, this case from Malachi is still our case too. This is why we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. This is why we need to be in gospel community with other men and women in our lives who can remind us the reality of what's true about us, but more importantly, what's true of King Jesus. We've been saved from the penalty of sin in the first courtroom, but there is an ongoing salvation that's happening in our lives as well. Each of us still lives in faithless ways, and as we trust Jesus and repent of that faithlessness, we're being saved from the power of sin in our lives also. We've been saved, we're being saved, and praise God, there comes a day where we will be saved from the very presence of sin, and we long for that day. So Malachi closes chapter 2 by telling the Israelites to guard themselves in their spirit and don't be faithless. But here's the thing. I don't think that just means try harder and do better. I don't think that's what Malachi meant, and I don't think that's what we need to hear this morning. In moments of faithlessness, in moments of unmet expectations, in moments of selfish sin, there's only one thing that will guard your spirit. There's only one thing that will get your attention in that moment, and it's not trying harder, and it's not doing better. It's remembering who God is for you. When we are faithless, we have a faithful God. When we break covenant, we have a covenant-keeping Savior. And so as we close this morning, I want you to listen to God's very own description of himself. I want you to let it wash over you this morning and let it guard your spirit to not be faithless. This is what the Lord says of himself in Exodus 34. I am the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Friends, that's your God. That's who he is always perfectly for you, despite your faithfulness. Let me pray. Father, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that, that we can come under your word. And Spirit, you can help us understand your word. Spirit, you help us submit to your word even when it's countercultural, even when it's difficult, even when it has hard things to say to us that, that might even hurt a little bit, we can submit to your word because we know 
that the main point of your word, the, the grand finale of your word, the greatest thing that we see and understand of your word is that Jesus Christ has come and he's given us his life and he's died in our place and he's raised again and he's ascended at the right hand and he's king and he's faithful and he will never leave us nor forsake us. And so God, I pray that we can trust that this morning as we sit under your word. Apply this word in all the places you know each of us needs it individually. And would you be glorified and honored as we leave here more in love with Jesus, more grateful for his faithfulness, and might it guard our spirit and help us not be faithless in our unmet expectations. We love you and we praise you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.